0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn from assessing weight and distance to calorie counting and calculating the depths of space. Throughout history, humans have loved to measure things. We accept most of these measurements as unremarkable facts of everyday life. But if you begin to unpick their history, several fascinating stories emerge. That's exactly what journalist and author James Vincent has done in his book Beyond Measure and eleanor evans spoke to him to find out more so james thank you so much for joining the history extra
3: podcast today it's a real pleasure to be chatting with you
4: thank you for having me great to be here
3: and i hope to start with a quote from you which is quote units of measurement aren't just practical tools they're cultural and political objects and deserve to be better understood now can we start by hearing from you a bit more on this idea and what brought you to write this book?
4: What brought me to write this book was I was working as a journalist in 2018, and I was sent on a, an assignment to Paris to cover the redefinition of the kilogram. And this was sort of completely a, a new subject to me, something I hadn't really thought about beforehand. But I, I, I went to this meeting in Paris uh, hosted by the Bureau International de Poids et Mesures, which is the sort of French uh, body or French-based body that is, uh, you know, in charge of looking after the metric system. And I began speaking to the scientists and diplomats there about the history of the metric system. And this was, you know, the topic of the story was the redefinition of the kilogram. But the more I looked into it, the more the the cultural history of these objects and of this system just became utterly fascinating to me. You know, the metric system, I'm sure something we'll get into in a little bit, you know, was created during the French Revolution. And it had this huge political import, as well as being a scientific achievement. And when I started thinking about that, I started thinking about, okay, so where did these other units of measurement come from? Where where is the yard from? Where is the ounce from? Who decided that an inch had to be an inch? And the more I looked into this subject, the more I found that the systems of measurement we live with every day and we take for granted are embedded in this hugely rich history that goes back thousands of years. It goes back to the very dawn of sort of organised civilization and society. And it's something that we've really struggled with as a species for a long time. And we've had this enormous payoff from. So I, I just think it's a topic that we don't think about enough and that deserves to be thought about more.
3: And I wonder if we can uh, start with another artefact that you visited, the Nilometer. Am I pronouncing that correctly?
4: Yes, Nilometer. Yeah, I love the Nylometer's that was one of my favorite discoveries looking into the research in this book was um, that there used to be spread across ancient Egypt and remnants of them still survive today, hundreds perhaps, we're not sure of the exact number, of these essentially, these large measuring sticks (laughs) that were stuck into the Nile uh, and these were built as freestanding columns or they were built into the sort of the walls of the Nile itself, the banks where people had steps going down to the water and they were many. Measuring the depth of the Nile's flooding each year. So, the Nile's flooding was obviously integral to the formation of ancient Egyptian society. It was the central cycle in their calendar that you know, set so much in motion. So it, it was the flooding of the Nile that gave um, ancient Egypt its agricultural riches, its economic power. It was based on the fact that, you know, these alluvial plains uh, got filtered uh, with this rich silt each year, and that would be harvested in this really regular cycle. So in order for that to happen, in order for that to be controlled in a way by the Egyptian state, they needed to predict how deep or how shallow the flooding would be each year. Because based on the flood, you would then have to make decisions about, okay, so do we need to store up more grain for next year? Are we going to have a bountiful harvest? Can we afford to go to war with the Assyrians? Whatever it might be. And so to fix this problem and to try to predict the the rhythms of the Nile a bit better, ancient Egyptians came up with these nilometers, essentially, as I say, big measuring sticks. But they had this hugely... Rich sort of history and protocol surrounding their use. They were often built into temple complexes because it was the job of the Egyptian priest class, which sort of sort of straddled um, religious and bureaucratic responsibilities. So it was their job to sort of look after the state, but obviously they were also there to mediate with the gods. And the Nile fits into both of those um, responsibilities really neatly because it's obviously it has this very practical effect on how the state functions, but it has a spiritual dimension to it as well because the, the flooding of the Nile was in some ways a reflection of the God's favour. So the priests were literally with these rulers. They were measuring the depth of the God's pleasure or displeasure. Uh, and these, I got to visit one, or I, I visited a couple actually in Cairo. Um, I was there with uh, Salima Ikrem, who's the head of Egyptology, Egyptology at the American University at Cairo. And she sort of explained to me more about the, the the presence and the importance that these had in the ancient Egyptian state. And I just think it's sort of you know this wonderful symbol of both the practical importance of measurement and the sort of spiritual dimensions which we often forget about.
3: Definitely, it's it's a, a fascinating artifact. But I do think I skipped us ahead a little bit there because obviously there's a lot of technology and innovation that go, that goes into these sort of tools that came about in this time, but. When it came to measuring the physical world, you write that so many societies have turned to using the tools at hand, our bodies, which obviously predates this in so many ways. What can you say about that phenomenon?
4: So the first units of measurement that we know about in any uh, society, they t- t- tend to be derived from the human body itself. There's a great um, science writer and historian, a guy named Robert Kreese, who's written about metrology as well and was sort of one of the books I read during my research. And he talks about the need for units of measurement that are consistent, accessible, and proportionate. And the human body fulfills all three of these criteria. So you have a lot of ancient societies and you know, still these measurements survive today in various ways that have units of length based on the foot, for example or based on the stride. And this is a way of measuring up the world, a way of dividing it that makes sense intuitively to us. I think, I think this is really interesting because it's an argument you still hear today when you talk to people who sort of are nostalgic about the imperial system or the US customary system of weights and measures. They talk about how these units are natural in some way because they're derived from the body. I think a lot of that is overstated as an argument. In, in today's world, it's not as relevant, but there is definitely something there. So you get, um, Cultures, uh, you know, and it's not just the feet and the fathom and that we're familiar with today. But you have sort of ancient Aztec cultures, for example, they turned uh, the body into this huge index of different measurements. So you have not only the length of the forearm or the length of two outstretched arms, but you have things like the length defined by someone raising their hands up above their head or stretching on this diagonal route that goes from the tip of the finger to the to the sternum. So the body becomes this source of measurement. It becomes this source for understanding the world. And what it offers, as I say, is consistency. And this is why a lot of early units are also derived from uh, nature as well. So one really common source was seeds, because seeds happen to be, you know, they're accessible, you can get them all year round, they're cheap, they're abundant, um, but they're usually a pretty consistent size. So millet seeds, for example, were used as a way of constructing units in ancient China. You would line up a certain number of millet seeds and then that would be your standard unit of length. So this is what sort of uh, measurement provided in early societies. It was a way of consistently dividing up the material world. And then that has all sorts of benefits for trade, for construction, for scientific knowledge. And this is why these units sort of are um, proliferated and they prosper.
3: Yes, I imagine many people will recognise that same consistency today and what it gives us. But something a a bit less consistent, but no less fascinating, is the idea that measurements then evolve out of practicalities. I think one that that I found so fascinating was a certain society where they they judged a journey by how many pipes they could smoke on the way. (laughs) Yes,
4: yeah, yeah. I, I, I love these old units because they are so obviously rooted in everyday experience. And, you know, how we try and understand the world. So a lot of, you get this divide in my head. You know, This is just the way I've sort of divvied it up, divvied it up and categorized it. You get shorter units, which are usually based on the body. And then when you're trying to estimate longer, longer distances, particularly, you start to get more inventive units. So a common unit is the bow shot for example, or the axe throw. Uh, One is the number of pipes that are smoked. Uh, There's a great one, which is the number of coconuts that you might drink over a journey. And I I think these sort of make intuitive sense. They're not very... They're not very consistent. They're not very accurate. You know, your coconut length might differ from my coconut length, as it were. But they give us a sort of uh, intuitive understanding of journeys that we still sort of think about today. You know, if you and I were navigating around um, London, for example... You know, you might have a journey. You might have a long walk or something. Maybe you're doing a walk down, you know, in the South Downs or somewhere like that. And you go, oh, well, that journey is. Well, I know it's so many miles, but I also know I'll need this much food for it, or I'll need this much water, or I'll, I'll, I'll maybe I'll listen to it's two episodes of a podcast. That's how much it is to me. Maybe it's two episodes of History Extra. You know, who knows? Um, and I, I, I love this that we still do sort of improvise units out of nowhere. And what they do is that that they turn bits of the world, which are sort of difficult to communicate, like long distances, they turn it into something we can communicate as well. So it's about creating essentially a language. Measurement is a language.
3: So you've already outlined then some of the benefits that consistency has given us. But the flip side of that, potentially not not a binary thing, but there is another phenomenon. There's a lot of power at play, isn't there, with the people who impose those measurements, who set the measurements. Can you talk a bit more broadly about how, how you found that in your book?
4: Yeah. So as I sort of said earlier, the history of measurement goes back to the very earliest records we have of human society. So if you're creating consistent units of measure, that becomes both a duty and a prerogative, a responsibility of the state itself. Because, you know, you want your citizens to be able to trade freely down at the market, for example. You want them to know that if they're going to go down and buy their daily bread, their, their grain, maybe their cloth for their clothes, that they're not going to be cheated because the measurements aren't going to be different one way or another. So it's a responsibility that leaders take on. Now, obviously, when you have anything like that, it begins to sort of accrue power in its own right. If you are setting the standards which make your citizens' life fairer or easier for them, then that becomes something that you may fight over, you may sort of negotiate over. So, in the early modern period, we see in Europe, for example, a lot of, um, one, of one of the places I looked at was sort of city states in northern Italy because they were very, very prosperous and they often came up with their own system of measurement which would make sense for all their traders within their sphere of influence so when they were conquered or when there was a sort of political desire to shift them out of their position of power there might be negotiations over the use of those measurements because being able to set them would in some cases be used to sort of assimilate them into a larger system so when you get conquerors like Charlemagne for example or during the Roman Empire, one of the things that they would do is that they would try and impose their system of measurement on the domains and the provinces that they conquered. Because one effect of that was that you would then bind all of these individuals and all of this economic activity into a single political entity. Units of measurement take on this air of uh, political power, essentially. To be in control of them is to wield control over your subjects. It has benefits that you give to people, but it also, you know it confers a sort of level of authority. And this is something we see going right the way back to, as I say, the earliest records of a civilization. So things like the Code of Hammurabi has provisions in it about using the correct measurements. It's something that appears in the Magna Carta. It appears in the US Constitution, that when you want to take charge of an area, you have to control the measurement to do so.
3: Now, sovereignty is something that we're going to return to over the course of the discussion, I'm sure. But Right now, we're both in the south of England. It's a very hot day, and I wonder if we could zero in on what you found about uh, heat measurement because you you did travel to see the world's first Celsius thermometer.
4: I did, yeah. I went to Uppsala to see the first ever thermometer. Well, no, not the first ever thermometer. This was the interesting part of that story, I think, was that thermometry, the measurement of heat, has been, I I think, a really interesting topic within the wider systems of measurement. Because unlike weight or unlike length, Heat, the experience of hot and cold is quite subjective. You know, we, you know this if you just, you know, you live in a house with someone and they say, God, it's freezing in here. And you go, what? No, I'm. this is lovely and warm. You know, it, it's not something that we can agree on as easily by just comparing how long something is or how heavy something is with a set of scales. So deciding how to measure hot and cold was a really, really difficult subject. Um, for hundreds of years, there used to be all sorts of different temperature scales. And the first early temperature measuring devices are called thermoscopes. So that's the sort of predecessor of the thermometer is a thermoscope. What differentiates them is a lack of consistency. So Galileo, for example, was one of the early experimenters with thermoscopes, and his were similar in design to modern thermometers, sealed thermometers, in that they had a liquid of some sort in a bulb at the bottom, and then that liquid would expand or contract based on the heat of the surrounding environment, and it would push up or pull down a column of air which would give you a reading about what the temperature was. But there was no way to compare one thermoscope to another. You know, there was no consistent scale that could be repeated time and time again. And the difficulty with this is, and the question I sort of ask in my book, is how do you create a reliable thermometer without a reliable thermometer to know that you've created a reliable thermometer? You know, if I have this thermometer and I tell you, well, it says that's 27 degrees and that's 46 and that's 32, how do you compare that? How do you check that? And that the answer that scientists came to is they looked for stable thermometric phenomena, and what I mean by that is they looked for events or objects that seem to happen or seem to occur at the same temperature each time. And those would be the marker points for your scale, basically. Now, over centuries, people look for all sorts of different ways of finding these thermometric markers. Um, Newton was one of the people who sort of experimented with this and was very interested in this. And he came up with a, a temperature scale that included on it the heat of freshly Drawn blood, and uh, there's another one which is the melting point of butter. There was the, the temperature of the catacombs in Paris, and there was a, a really great one which was um, the hottest temperature that you can have your hand in a bath, <laughs> and that was that was sort of presumed to be well, that's a uni- universal human experience, obviously. And, and this shows the sort of the difficulty with finding these things because obviously, you know, people can stand different temperatures of bath, so it's not a very good way to mark out a thermometry scale what we eventually found and what um Anders celsius found he you know inventor of the first celsius centigrade for the moment or however you want to call it was that what were really good stable points were the freezing and boiling points of water and these became the two markers for the two ends of the scale and i think you know they're like tent poles hammered down to stop this scale flying off into the wind somewhere This took a lot, a lot of experimentation to work out exactly what these boiling and freezing points were. Because even if you think about the boiling point of water, for example, when does water boil? Or when does it look like water is boiling? Is it when the first bubbles appear? Or is it when there's a rolling boil and there's a continual source of bubbles? Um, And the scientists I sort of looked into, they, they really dove into this aspect of sort of human experience, as it were, if we can call boiling water that, and that they started dividing up boiling into, you know, six, seven, eight different types of boiling. And this is what I love about measurement as well, is that it encourages us to look really closely at the world. You start thinking that you're measuring something like the boiling point of water, and then you realize that actually the boiling point of water is a really vague phenomenon, and there's all sorts of different ways to slice it up. And you it's it's sort of like a it's a fractal experience, and that every time you look closer, you discover that there is another level of detail waiting to be revealed. Anyway, <laughs> so they looked into all this, and Anders Celsius was the guy who came up with um, not necessarily because he was a good instrument maker he didn't actually make the instruments but he was a great experimentalist and he did all sorts of close observations and he eventually came up with this scale that is become familiar to us all today the celsius scale now the interesting thing was that uh, when i went to see this first ever thermometer it's a beautiful, beautiful object, sort of silvery, very delicate looking, very fragile. It looks like, you know, it looks like a magical instrument, like a magical wand or something. And it's encased in this uh, old, very old stained sort of oak deck and it has his handwritten scale along the side of it. But when you look closely, you realise that the scale is upside down, that Celsius put the zero degrees as the boiling point of water, and he put a 100 degrees as the freezing point of water. And it wasn't until years later that that would be flipped around. And that's just a sort of historical curio, but I think it really shows how arbitrary a lot of systems of measurement are. You know, they make sense uh, when we're used to them, but actually they have to be invented. They have to be dreamt up. And it's only once they're used and applied consistently do they start appearing to be these sorts of solid, objective... Descriptions of the world,
3: right? That they gather their meaning and become sort of that the picture of finite. So um you mentioned a couple of names there, Newton and Galileo. That I think people, you know, they'll think of the history of weights and measures, and they might think, yeah, those names. That I think of science, I think of th- those kind of names. But what really struck me as well is that you know, alongside these these thought experiments and I suppose scientific things, you know, measurements are, are everywhere, aren't they? From you know, artistic perspective to measuring rhythm or tonal shifts in music, and i guess it was just that span that i found so staggering
4: yeah i i I think um there's a lot of uh, there's a chapter i did on the sort of early modern period which has a lot of this idea about quantification as a broader activity than just the scientific um and one of the ones um uh, one of the sort of aspects i looked into was quantification within music and this was a really sort of fascinating subject to me i i you know i'm a I'm not a, I'm not a musician, but I played the piano when I was young and I, you know, I, I love to read music and all that sort of thing. And I hadn't thought about how that was a subject that had to be measured. So I talk a little bit about the, um, evolution from plain song where you have music which is, um, you know, noted down very vaguely, as it were, you know, you have sort of sheet music that just has vague notes dotted about the, uh, dotted about the scale, but the scale doesn't really exist. And then over time, people start adding staves, they start adding those horizontal lines that allow them to, uh, you know, more properly, more accurately describe what the melody is doing. I find I find this really interesting because it shows how quantification pushes forward something like art. So, from the invention of the stave, the musical stave, there suddenly is a new ability for musicians to describe, to capture, and to replicate much more complicated melodies. And this becomes so controversial during this period, during sort of the 1400s, the 1300s, that there's even a papal bull issued by the pope denouncing this complicated and cluttered music because he thought the melodies were so, you know, he thought melodies were so complex that they would distract people from, you know, the purity and the devotion of the church. And so quantification, you know, again, we think of it as something quite dry and quite utilitarian, but in this case, it enabled entire new musical genres to flourish. It could have laid the foundation for, you know, Renaissance music in a way. And the same is true of art as well. That when we begin to divide up the world, we begin to do new things with it and we can capture new details that we thought were impossible before. <laughs>
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: This shows that sort of it's not an easy thing to change people's systems of measurement because they're so used to the units that they grew up with. So from this period onwards, there is a lot of discussion in the US and the UK particularly about adopting the metric system.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring
2: Visit betterhelp.com/slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com/slash History Extra
3: So from uh, a thought then that I found, you know, it's so fascinating, but also fairly abstract, I suppose, in terms of thinking about it, to the uh, phenomenon that you call the single most significant event in the history of measurement, which people will might well be tuning in for the creation of the metric system. Where does that come from?
4: So the metric system is a political project and it's a practical project. So I talked a little bit about, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, the early modern system, early modern period where you have lots of units of measurement being derived from the body. In Ancien Régime France, there was a particularly large number of units, basically. And this was in part because of the political system that controlled France at the time. You have um, units of measurement Or systems of measurement that are defined by local lords. And this means, or this is one of the reasons that you have a proliferation of different units. Uh, There was one estimate by um, an English agriculturist named Arthur Young, who was travelling through France uh, prior to the revolution. And he said that there were thousands of different units. He said it was an infinitude of units, that it was tormenting to the people because you would buy, you know, an L's worth of cloth in, in Provence and then you would go to Bordeaux and you would realise it was not the same sized L. And so you couldn't trade between different parts of the country. It also meant that uh, the peasants felt that they were being taken advantage of a lot. So when they were paying their sort of uh, manorial dues that they owed to their local lord, their local lord would often have his own size bushel of grain that he would use to collect taxes in that just so happened to be a little bit larger than the bushel that the peasants themselves were using. So there was this sort of feeling of being uh, taken advantage of. So... This all led to uh, a demand among the peasantry in the run-up to the French Revolution for a consistent system of measurements. And there was even this uh, slogan, which was one king, one law, one weight, one measure, that was uh, repeated again and again in this document called the de Dolliance, which was the sort of complaints of the people that were supposed to be given, you know, they were collected by the third estate and they were supposed to be presented to the king that these are the wrongs we want righted. So that was the practical side of it. (laughs) But once uh, the politicians got involved, the French revolutionary politicians and the scientists got involved, who were often motivated by the same ideals, they also thought that creating a new system of measurement for France could be something that had far greater ambitions than just France itself. They wanted to create a system of measurement for the entire world. And what they came up with was the metric system. And I think it's amazing because they have, in a way, succeeded. You know, the Metric system is now this global system of measurement that is embraced by pretty much every country on the planet. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that later, but it had this political ideal to it. So instead of uh, a common unit of length at the time prior to the revolution was called the pied du roi, which literally translates as the foot of the king. And this was a unit that went dated back to Charlemagne but its origin was exactly as the name suggests supposed to be the length of the king's foot so this is a unit of measurement that is literally derived from the bodily authority of the monarch and so for the french republicans this obviously was repugnant this was something that enshrined an outdated system of values that they wanted to get rid of so they replaced the pied du rat with the meter which is this arch expression of scientific rationality and the meter is defined as one ten millionth of the distance from the North Pole to the equator. So that's based on the line called the meridian, uh, which you know goes imaginary line that goes from the top to the bottom of the globe. And they conducted a huge seven-year survey uh, where a pair of astronomers, Delambre and Michon, um, surveyed across most of continental Europe essentially in order to measure this line. And then the scientists uh, come up with this meter bar and they present it to, in their in their eyes, a grateful nation who were just begging for this to be bestowed upon them. But it does. Turn turned out to be this huge, huge scientific achievement that has now taken over the globe, just as they wanted it to.
3: Am I right in saying that that metre that they presented there was a little bit short?
4: It was. It was. I mean, this is the wonderful thing about the metre as well, is that it's not quite a metre. I mean, I, but that, it, that's, you know, that's sort of a joke to say, because a metre is what we say it is. Essentially, we've done sort of modern satellite surveys of the distance that was covered, that was measured, this meridian line, and we found out that their calculations of Delambre and Michon were slightly off, Um, and it's a tiny, tiny difference. I think it translates to, you know, like a, a half of a millimeter in the final length of the meter. So they, so for the equipment they were using, they were incredibly, extraordinarily precise. However, the meter is wrong, and it doesn't matter. This is this is the great thing about it, you know. We think of this and the revolutionary thought of this as being this grand, unimpeachable scientific project. But essentially, the science behind it is really just another story that we tell. And it was the story, the narrative, of this scientific conquest that helped to spread the metre. So it's not simply that the science is objective and that it has this uh, this truth that can't be ignored. It's the fact that they went through all this effort and then they decided that this is what we're going to use. And it's the application of this measurement that makes it stick in the world.
3: Right. And, and so hand-in-hand hand with this... Um metric system then we also have the history of anti-metric sentiment um now without skipping us too much ahead you joined in the in the course of your research an interesting group called the active resistance to metrication what can you tell us about them
4: oh a great bunch of lads um <laughs> no they so active resistance to metrication is like it's best best described as a metrological guerrilla group you know they are they are connected very loosely to what's called the bwma the british weights weights and measures association which um is all about preserving the imperial system of measurement within the uk and arm is the guerrilla arm of the BWMA, and what they do is they run around the country and and they tear down metric signposts. Bless them. Uh, <laughs> it's it's not it's not quite that they tear them down. They replace them or they paint over them. And their point is that um we need to preserve these traditional weights and measures. And when they see metric signposts being put up by the council, they say that legally these should be in imperial units. And so they take matters into their own hands. And they go on these little guerrilla raids. It was amazing to see the passion that this subject inspires in people. You know, for the the members of ARM that I spoke to, it was not just, you know, a hobby for them. It was very much that they feel that the traditional heritage of the UK is under threat, that weights and measures are part of that heritage, and that they need to be protected by any means necessary. And so that's what they do.
3: And it is drawing on then a long history of people regarding the metric system, particularly as affecting sovereignty or control. Um, Where else have we seen that playing out?
4: Well, the history of anti-metric sentiment sort of goes back to the founding of the metric system itself, basically, when it was being finalised, the scientists involved in it thought, God, this is too weird, isn't it? We're going to really annoy people if we tell them to use these new units. And it, it turns out they were completely right about that. France was the first country to adopt the metric system, and it was also the first country to reject it, in that the metric weights and measures were introduced during the French Revolution, And by the time Napoleon took control, people were sort of annoyed about them. They thought that they were too complex and they were seen as being too heavily associated with the Republican movement. So he got rid of them. They were restored again during the July monarchy in the 1830s. But this shows that sort of it's not an easy thing to change people's systems of measurement because they're so used to the units that they grew up with. So from this period onwards there is a lot of discussion in the US and the UK particularly about adopting the metric system. Lots of countries adopted it during this time, but they often adopted it forcefully. So when Napoleon was conquering much of Europe, the Napoleonic code that he introduced in many countries also included the metric system as sort of a package deal. Um, In the US and the UK, we thought about adopting this as well, because it seemed like a really good system, basically. Much clearer and much easier to understand in some ways than imperial units. But people were very suspicious of it because of this association with the French Revolution. People saw it as godless. They saw it as the product of these bloodthirsty atheist Republicans. And they developed this I think, I don't know whether to call it a conspiracy theory or a pseudoscience, but there developed this belief during the 1800s that the imperial system and certain units of the imperial system, namely the inch, were not just historical artifacts, but they were divine artifacts. There was this pseudoscience that sprung up called pyramidology, which was all about measuring the great pyramid at Giza and the belief that the ancient Egyptians, they knew stuff that we didn't. They knew all these sorts of grand historical truths about the world and they encoded these within the dimensions, the architecture of the pyramid. And so they measured the pyramid in all these various ways. And they've worked out, to their own satisfaction, that the inch was used to construct the pyramid. Which is obviously, it's sort of crazy. Like, the, of course the inch didn't exist. The inch is not an ancient Egyptian unit of measurement. The cubit is. Uh, but a, a, an inch happens to be about 1 25th of a cubit. So it's it fitted into their calculations. And they came to believe that... um The Egyptians had been instructed in how to build the pyramid by God. (laughs) And for that reason, the pyramids were meant as this sort of lasting monument. This monument in the desert is what they call it, that was meant to enshrine for all of humanity the divine system of measurement that happened to be based on the inch. So anti-metric sentiment becomes motivated not only by xenophobia, by the idea that why should these French tell us what to do, but by religious zeal as well. And this is something you see in both the US and the UK. Now, I I want to be clear that these weren't necessarily the sort of overriding arguments that won the day when the debates were being had about whether to adopt the metric system. There were a lot of practical inducements as well for keeping the systems of measurement that the US and the UK had. And the biggest one of those was capital investment and essentially the fact that in the US particularly they had put so much money into building up machine tools and factories that were using these old systems of measurement that replacing them would have done a lot of economic harm and that made complete sense. But there is also this other side to it as well. And the, the weird thing is, is that we still see these arguments playing out today. You know, with the discussion we've had about the imperial system and it's possible, possibly making a comeback. We still see people saying, why should we let the French impose their system on us? So I think that although this is a sort of historical aspect of measurement, it's still something that is very much with us today
3: absolutely fascinating stuff given the recent reports we saw this year as well. Um, so we've already talked then about how people have used their own bodies throughout the ages to um, work out various measurements, weights and be- weights and measures. But there is a more insidious um, phen- phenomenon in your book as well of measurements being imposed on the body themselves. What can you say about, um, well, eugenics and, and the rise of this idea of Bodies being codified in this way.
4: Yeah, yeah. So th- this is, I think, a really uh, a, an aspect of measurement that we really can't ignore. That although it has great, great practical utility and benefits to us, it's also been used as a tool of control and oppression in various ways. And this this has happened on different scales, uh, you know, over time. But eugenics is perhaps the most egregious example of this. So eugenics obviously has its has an origin in lots of sort of historical and social trends but it was also very fascinated and um enthralled by shall we say the idea that you could measure human intelligence in this very easy and uh, and objective way so the IQ test comes about uh it sort of stems from um ideas in the 1800s onwards that you could measure humanity in all these various ways, and you would find certain traits that were true of different countries, of different populations, and eventually of different races. That once you started to measure enough individuals within a group, you could then extrapolate truths about all the people within that group. And with IQ with the intelligence quotient this becomes used this becomes a a political tool for the eugenicists for the people who are obsessed at this time with keeping nations quote-unquote pure um one of the ways this is implemented is in America, where IQ tests are given to immigrants coming from uh, different countries around Europe and other, p- other parts of the world. And these tests are administered to immigrants as they arrive on Ellis Island. And one of the findings uh, by the sort of the, the people conducting these tests was that it, they found based on their own tests that the immigrants were of low intelligence. Now there are lots of reasons why this was the finding they made and one of the ones is that the the tests they were given were culturally biased they were very much looking for information that you would only know if you happen to be an inhabitant of that country and the fact that you're also testing people who have just spent weeks on a cargo ship often crammed into the hold of these cargo ships in the most abhorrent conditions you know who have been sort of living cheek by chow with hundreds of other people they haven't had enough food they don't speak the language they've just arrived in the new country and then someone puts a test in front of them and says look if, you're, if i have two cows and you know that and they give them these questions and they came to the conclusion that the immigrants were of a lower intelligence than um the uh you know the the, the quote-unquote the anglo-saxon races um and that this meant that we needed to the society needed to keep these people out and obviously this sort of snowballs over time that's a sort of a huge understatement for it and begins folded into these eugenics programs which are very prominent in the UK in the US particularly and then of course um during the 20th century adopted by to terrible effect by uh, the Nazi government i think what this shows is that we sometimes think of measurement as this supremely objective tool that because we can put a number on something it means that we have discovered some unerring truth about it. So it's really interesting when you look at the origins of the IQ test particularly. Um, One of the main guys who came up with it was a French psychologist named Alfred Binet. And he thought that the IQ test would essentially be a really useful way to identify children in school who might need a little bit more help. And he was always very clear that what the IQ test measured was only ever a snapshot. It was only ever a, a very contextual Little tool of testing someone's, uh, you know, whether they were struggling in the classroom, whether they needed a bit more help. Very simple, very narrow in its ability. And people who came after him said, no, what this tests is someone's objective, unchanging intelligence, their natural inbuilt intelligence. And once we have this number, that tells us all we need to know about that person. And so I think this is the dangerous side of measurement, as it were, that we can sometimes put too much focus too much faith in what the numbers are supposedly telling us and that means that we have to discard the context so like when you're testing the intelligence of uh, immigrants you're discarding the context of where they've come from why they've arrived at this time what they do know what opportunities they've had to learn you're throwing that all out the window and you're making a judgment because the numbers seem to tell you something that is objective and it's just not always the case
3: Yes, some very sort of troubling aspects there of, as you say, um, weights and measures. But from what you said, and for those who might think then that um, these systems are so established as to be immutable, is it fair to say then that if we do accept that, you know, measurements have arbitrary histories, they come with their own complexities, they do offer us so much more understanding about the world and our own skills?
4: Oh, absolutely. I, I you know, it's, it's, it's something I sort of thought about a lot while writing the book was like, is this going to be an anti-measurement book or is it a pro-measurement book? I mean, I, I, I don't want to say that it's one thing or the other. I say I'm trying to take a holistic view on what measurement has given us and what we need to be aware of. But yeah, I think ultimately measurement is obviously a fantastic fantastically useful practical tool i i I talked about this or mentioned this a little bit at the beginning of our conversation that measurement is a language and i i I think that's really the best way of thinking about it measurement is a way of communicating across time and space if we have a consistent set of units of, of measurement then they allow us to talk to people on the other side of the planet so measurement has been entirely um instrumental in developing things like the scientific method. Because if you don't have a consistent way of measuring something that happens in the world, say you're doing an experiment and you want to know, you know, the temperature, for example, at which uh, a certain substance boils or an alloy forms, or you know, there's some sort of calcination process or something like this, you need to be able to repeat that. And that means you need to set up the same conditions for your experiments each time. And that means you need to measure those conditions. So by measuring the world and noticing what changes, this is how science advances, this is how scientists Knowledge accrues over time. And this is why measurement is language, because it allows us to talk to people on the other side of the planet to, ser- to share knowledge. Um, and this is why I think it's obviously a, a, a hugely beneficial tool and one that, yes, we should all look into a little bit more.
3: So to finish off then, I wonder if uh, I could ask a couple of things. So I had a personal favourite uh, measurement that came out of your book, the rood. I wonder if you could explain to our listeners what that is, and then perhaps what's your own favourite you came across?
4: I shall do. I mean, so the rood is uh, a historic unit of length, essentially. Um, it is also sometimes used to measure area, and it really differs because it was, it was one of those units that sort of spread across Europe and had lots of different interpretations. But the, 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 the definition that I talk about in the book, um, is one that was come up by this, uh, German Reichenmeister, uh, reckoning master who was a sort of arithmetic and geometry teacher named Jacob Kerbel. Um, and he said, if you want to define the rude, here's what you do. You stand outside church on a Sunday, you, you know, and you wait for the people to f- start filing out and then out of the crowd you pick 16 men at random and pick some small ones and pick some medium ones and pick some big ones and you get them all to stand together with each of their foot placed behind their neighbours in a sort of conga line and then you measure the length of those 16 feet and there you have the rood. And from that, you can use the rood to measure your fields, you can use it to measure your buildings, to straighten your roads, all of these things. And I love that unit particularly, and I'm glad you asked about it because I I think it's such a wonderful example of how units of measurement were literally built from the communities that they served. That this was something that anyone could recreate in their village so it, w- it was a little bit inconsistent but uh, Kerbal is so specific about saying make sure you pick people of different heights so you have a good average length of a foot in order to create a rood that is you know useful and uh, sort of you know it's not it's not that you've got 16 giants and then you created a mega rood by accident you've got <laughs> you've got 16 average people instead um, and when it comes to my own favorite unit of measurement from the book oh gosh uh, I mean, there were a few I sort of came across that were very, uh, that that were just very odd. There's one, and uh, this is a bit rude. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this on a podcast. Um, there's one called the Penrig, which I didn't actually mention in the book, uh, but I just thought it was very funny. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a it, it, Penrig is short for penis rigidity, and it is a measure of tumescence, shall we say. Um, used by pharmaceutical companies to look at the ef- ef- efficacy of, um, I'm not sure what the correct term is, what the polite term is. You know what I'm talking about here. Viagra. Pills like that. So yeah, you listeners
3: want me to, have got it. Listeners have got it. All right. I'll <laughs> shut up.
4: I'll shut up. But, but it's a really interesting <laughs> unit of measurement because it's not about, <laughs> God, it's not about length. It is about, um, the amount of tissue that gets inflated to lift a certain amount of weight and it's just a, it's just a really bizarre unit of measurement. Anyway, the, the the thing is the world is full of units of measurement like this because each profession, each sort of specialty needs to make sense of whatever it is they're interested in. And I think the penrig is a is a cool example of that because it shows how, you know, people need to come up with their own way of measuring the world and getting what they want out of it.
0: <laughs> that was James Vincent. His book Beyond Measure The Hidden History of Measurement is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.